Okay, today is December 28th, the last few days of 2022, which has been one uh, rocking and rolling year. <laughs> yes, it has. And in this session, we're going to ask him to comment as an historian on earlier times. And would you please say my name is and introduce yourself? My name is Joseph Gravelin, and I always refer to myself as Joe. So I was born December 13th, 1949. I'm on the east side of the Connecticut River. I want to talk about the first settlement in Northfield. The pre-contact period here, history of Northfield, exceeds well over 10,000 years. So what I think I'd like to start with is the first settlement of Northfield because that's the easiest piece to chunk out and get out of the way because if you want to talk about uh, indigenous presence here, you, we have 10,000 years worth of conversations to have, which still, by the way, exist in the hills here in and around Northfield. So I was thinking I'd read a poem that I had written in 2011. So the assignment for the members of the Historical Commission, of which I was one, was to pick a individual that's buried in the old cemetery just north of us here, the first burying grounds, they call it, and, and do some research and then take on the persona of that individual. And then people from all over Western Mass came down that day, the day of history that we had in 2011, and they would visit the gravestones of the individuals who were part of the early history of Northfield. In front of the gravestones would be an actor portraying some of the life and feelings of the individuals that were buried there. Wow. Now, for my place in it, I was Samuel Wright, the first to be buried there before it was a cemetery. Now, Samuel Wright never had a headstone, and you'll hear that in, in the piece of poetry that I wrote. Samuel Wright's Lament. Come linger here a while, though I have no stone. For all of eternity, I will lie here alone. In want of some company all these long years, not an eye to fill have I known, nor the drop of a tear. Samuel Wright be my name, forty-six years would still be I, on ye two or September, 1675. T'was the spring of 73. To Squahig we came. The gold and the wheat fields our fortunes to gain. In this valley so bonny, yet so mournfully alone, our small band of pilgrims stood fast our new home. Ye point to the arrow, this palisade, they called, with the sweat of our brows, we built four sturdy walls. T'were no help from the east, no favor from the west, and the devil to the north at ye best. With the sound of the dawn, at first touch of the light, through the fog and the dew, and my wheat fields in sight, journeyed I down to the meadows, ye still quite alive. On ye to a September, 1675. We knew not of Brookfield the morning before, 
laid waste by the savages, burnt ceiling to floor. Captain Beers up from Hadley, to warn us he came, but dead fell he, for we could know of the enemy's name. At first muskets alert, up Meadow Hill I did make, as I glanced back to see the devil-make chase. Discharged I my shot and powder, and turned I to make haste, when a lead ball I caught brought me down on my face. My life slipped away through the tear in my flesh, and in a short while I breathed my last breath. I stayed where I lie, and I lied where I rest. For seven long years my bones bleached to the west. When a hole they had dug me, I to be one with the earth. With the death of my bones, ye burying ground was at birth. Samuel Wright be my name. Forty-six years would still be I on ye tour September 1675. Samuel Wright be my name. Forty-six years would still be I on the morning to September 1675. So that's Samuel Wright's lament. And he was the uh, individual that I took on the persona of in the day of history. So I had no gravestone. So I wandered about the graveyard and spoke to anyone that would listen <laughs> because everybody else had the privilege of having a marker to show where they were lied at their last rest. So the poem is a piece of Northfield's history. At first, muskets alert up Meadow Hill I did make. Meadow Hill was part of the layout of the first tracts of land given to the first settlers of Northfield if they were brave enough to come up here and try to create a settlement. So each participant in that first settlement was given a certain amount of land and the land was cut in an angle from east to west, and it had two sections to it. It had the hillside where I live, where my house is, and the hill below it, which is called the Great Meadows. And then it had from the hillside where I live up to the next terrace to Main Street at the east, which was the old Indian Trail, which was where the first fort, the first palisade of Squawkade, was built in 1675. Terraces of the ancient Lake Hitchcock, which existed here 22,000 years ago. So Lake Hitchcock was a result of the glaciers starting to, to succumb to the warmer days and starting to melt. Now, the ice that sat on the land here in Northfield at the point just prior to the glaciers starting to recede was two miles thick. It had so much weight to it that it compressed the ground significantly, and the ground has been rebounding since that glacier dried up and melted 20,000 years ago. The ground is still rebounding, so every so often this ground is elevated a little bit higher than it was uh, the previous decade because that weight has been relieved off of the ground. So the terraces were created by Lake Hitchcock as the glacier came to a halt in Middleton, Connecticut, it had pushed up in front of it a barrier of stone just as it ground its way across the mountains and across the landscape. It ground the earth right down to stone, and it ground that stone and pushed it up and rolled it, and it pushed up an earthen dam in Middleton, Connecticut, and then it came to a halt. 
So then the glacier started to retreat to the north as it melted. And when it did, this ancient Lake Hitchcock filled up. So the glaciers were receding from the warmer temperatures of this mini ice age, starting to disappear. Actually, it was a very long ice age. One of the 20 glacial epochs that have happened on the continent of North America over millions of years. But this is the one that we think of as the ice age in our human existence. So it started to melt back to the north. It was in Middleton, Connecticut. So the hills in Middleton fairly close together on the east and on the west, and the glacier pushed up this earthen dam to block off its retreat. It was slowly sliding south from the tremendous pressure of the weight. The glacier was constantly melting on the bottom and lubricating itself, and it was following gravity, moving its way south. But it got stuck in Middleton, Connecticut because of that earthen dam, and it melted from Middleton back up into Vermont and into Canada. So the lake filled up, and then over a period of time, the earthen dam gave way over five separate time periods. And each time the earthen dam broke and the water drained out, uh, the lake would find a new lower level of elevation and sit there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the weather in this area during that period, which was the time of the paleo hunter gatherers that moved through this area, the weather was such that it was a tundra environment. Winds always blowing most all day long at 35 miles an hour. Cold, damp, white caps on the ancient Lake Hitchcock. So all summer long there were white caps and the water had all that silt stored up in it. And when winter came back in again and the lake would freeze, then the water would calm and then all that very fine silt would settle to the bottom and create a brand new layer in the ancient lake. So each time the lake retreated, to a lower level, it left a terrace, a terrace representing so many hundreds and hundreds of years of summer-winter conditions where the silt would pile up. And so in the end, we had five terraces from Lake Hitchcock from the Connecticut River Basin that worked their way up west and up east on each side of the valley here. Main Street is on the top of terrace number five, the the final real, real terrace. A little bit of Lake Hitchcock had a couple of fingers that scooted up just north of Main Street across the street from the library down where the Shell Bridge is currently. And for the most part, that was it. Hitchcock didn't get too much higher than that, which is in this area here. My back pasture is is 335 feet above sea level. And so that gives you a pretty good idea of not quite the highest level of Hitchcock, but the next to the highest level. Now, we just had a train go by, and the railroad saw the benefit of terrace number four because it was such a long terrace and it was so dead level as what happens in a lake. You know, you look at the level of water on a lake and you look look at the the, uh, sediments that it leaves behind, and for the most part, they're just dead level. And so the railroad took advantage of that terrace and and built a railroad track on north and south on both sides of the river. Now, the indigenous people knew about this lake, and this is going to open up a brand new story, but it is a profound story because it talks about the attempt of, of a European mindset, both scientifically and otherwise, to play a part in what I would call cultural erasure of indigenous people. In other words, if a dominant culture doesn't have value in the history of another culture, that you erase that culture. 
so that nobody ever gets a chance to know about it. So, in 2009, there was a runway expansion project for the Turners Falls Airport, where I've landed my airplane many, many times. And they wanted to extend the runway to make it into a jet runway so they could land jets there. Now they were going to push the runway back into Miller's Falls almost in order to get a couple of miles of runway so that they could bring in high-speed jets. The FAA requires when a runway is lengthened that the lateral clearance for safety reasons left and right of a runway have to be flattened out and cleared away. What we had at the Turners Falls Airport was a hill, a very, very special hill that goes back many, many thousands of years in indigenous lore and indigenous history. It ended up being given the name the Ceremonial Hill by the Department of the Interior in 2009, which is where the story is going. So when the FAA came in and the federal money came in to expand the runway, the, the tribes, the Narragansett, the Wampanoag, and the Pequot tribe, showed up and said, we'd like to talk to you about this project that you have because we have a special hill out here that is part of our body of knowledge where we used to gather in August, August 7th through August 12th for millennia, we would gather here and watch the souls of our ancestors return to Kentanowitz House in the Southwest during the Perseus meteor showers. Now, the state of Massachusetts said, well, what makes you think that there's anything there? And they said, well, we have alignment stones that allow us to align ourselves so we can we can sit and watch the Perseus meteor showers and watch the return of the souls of our ancestor to Kantanawat, who is, it's another name for the Northeastern indigenous version of God, to Kantanawat's house. He has a, a big house in the Southwest and all the souls of our ancestors that died the previous year can be witnessed returning to Kantanawat's house somewhere between August 7th and August 12th. The state of Massachusetts said, now any piles of stones you see all around New England are strictly the work of colonial farmers. The tribe said, well, no, our legend and our lore and understanding of this goes back 10,000 years. So the challenge was on. Whose science knows what's going on here? So the tribes picked up their paperwork and headed to Washington, D.C., to the Department of the Interior, along with the Massachusetts Historical Commission, the Massachusetts FAA, and the federal FAA, as well as the other stakeholders that were involved. And they sat around a big table, and they started telling of their history here. And they told of ancient Lake Hitchcock in The Legend of the Sleeping Beaver. And that really does involve Northfield here in a way that I'll describe in a little bit. In South Deerfield, Massachusetts, you have a mountain called Mount Sugarloaf. Now, the lookout on Mount Sugarloaf that looks south is the head of the sleeping beaver. And he runs from south with his head to north with his tail. His tail happens to end up right at the boundary of the Sokoke people's land, the people of Northfield, and the Pocumtuck people's land at the Great Falls and Turner's Falls, which is where the Turner's Falls Airport is. So the tail of the beaver ends there. And so they told of the legend where there was a giant beaver that lived in ancient Lake Hitchcock. And this beaver ate all the fish. And when the fish were gone, it started to go ashore and to eat the people. So they called on their ancient being, Hummabuck. 
and they asked him to help them do something about this marauding beaver. And so Hummabuck came out of the mountain in Northfield where he lives, and he walked down toward what's now called Deerfield, Massachusetts. He yanked a giant oak tree up by its roots and waded out into the middle of the lake and had battle with the giant beaver. Eventually, he got the opportunity to bring that giant oak down or across the back of the neck of the giant beaver, and he killed the beaver, and the beaver sank to the middle of the lake. And so the beaver lied there in the middle of this ancient lake and became stone and is there still today. So that is a 10,000-year-old legend and story of the ancient beaver that was passed down. So the Department of the Interior said, do you have any proof that your history, your lineage in storytelling, has any fact in science? And an organization that I was part of did some research and found a letter by a Reverend White who lived in the area and had been taking the legends down on paper and recording them in the 1800s. Bear in mind that his recording of the story of the ancient Lake Hitchcock happened before the science ever revealed, in fact, there was an ancient lake here. So after reviewing the letters of Reverend White about the ancient story of the sleeping beaver in Lake Hitchcock, the Department of the Interior turned to the Massachusetts Historical Commission and said, well, we're sorry, but it appears that the tribe's science and their knowledge of their own landscape exceeds the science of your people. We're going to protect that hill. We're going to assign it the name, the Ceremonial Stone Hill. And we're going to create a district in a 16-mile radius circumference around that hill as a Ceremonial Stone Landscape District, the first of its kind recognized by the Department of the Interior. And so the airport was allowed to be expanded just slightly, but a new runway put down strictly for prop planes, no jets coming in, the th of which I was one, signed a letter saying, thank you, that's all we ever wanted. We never wanted to create a jet port here. So the hill's protected, and it's part of the story of ancient Lake Hitchcock. Now, that area where the tail ends up, which is what the Wissatiniwag organization, the uh, Nolambika project that owns the ancient 10,000-year-old village Wissatiniwag, is sitting on the northern end of that tail, and they own that piece of property right at the base of the Great Falls where Falls River comes in, just below the Great Falls, which is now called Turner's Falls. And that's a whole other story unto itself. So this lake that existed here was utilized by the paleo hunters as they followed the elk and caribou herds as they migrated north to south and south to north for their calving season and then for their feeding season. So they'd go up and back twice a year. And there's a, what's called a paleo corridor. So both sides of the Connecticut River and 50 miles to the west to the Hudson River, where the mountain comes up, on the west of the Hudson are considered a paleo quarters. This corridor is a very ancient pathway that the first peoples that were here utilized over and over and over again for well over 12,000 years, following the elk and caribou herd. Up in New York State, they've also encountered mastodon in the Black Earth section of New York State, which is still within the western edges of this corridor that we're 
in right now, today as we speak, this paleo corridor. And in one of the swaps there a number of years ago was unearthed the bones of a mastodon. And not only was that mastodon bones unearthed, but some of the bones of another mastodon were unearthed. Thirteen rib bones were unearthed. Each of those rib bones had been broken in half and had been displaced in that ancient swamp. And then the mastodon itself, part of it was left there as well. And in the middle of that swamp was a giant stone right where those broken rib bones were left behind. And what was figured out was that this was a rite of passage for young men. There were 13 young men that had been given their father's atlatls, which is what those rib bones were. They were, they were carved up to be atlatls, which is a throwing spear device. It's a mechanical device to allow a spear to go stronger and further. They hunted the mastodon with their father's atlatls, these 13 young men, and they took the mastodon down. They butchered him at that place, and then they broke their father's atlatl rib bones and created their own. And so the mastodon that was found, his skeleton remains were missing 13 rib bones. So sometimes you can hear the stories through oral tradition, and sometimes you can discover them in the ground, and it's pretty interesting. So to get back to Northfield, some of the lines in my poem are based on the language that was often used, because the indigenous people were often called advocates of the devil or the devil itself. They were called savages. They were called many, many things. And you'll hear that language as it related to in the poem that I wrote and that I had the chance to speak for you. Now, Samuel Wright had a son who was with him in the Great Meadows that day, that September 2nd morning. And Samuel didn't make it up Meadow Hill. The Meadow Hill that he didn't make it up is right on the north end of my property. So my property has just a ton of history embedded in it, including the first fort and settlement, which was attacked on September 2nd, 1675. And Meadow Hill is running right behind me as I speak here. I'm on the east side of the Connecticut River, three terraces up from the Connecticut River with two more terraces to go before you hit Main Street heading east. So my property runs parallel with the railroad track, which runs north and south, and parallel with Main Street in Northfield, which was the ancient footpath of the Sokoke people. And that runs north and south as well. And so that's where I am relevant to Meadow Hill. Meadow Hill played a big part in the original first deeds that were given to the settlers that came here. And so I have the privilege of having the ability to recognize in the landscape that I walk across what happened. So yesterday morning I was walking down in the Great Meadows, which is at the foot of Meadow Hill here. Some of it's my property is on the Great Meadows and some of my fellow abutters, farmers, their property is there. And just walking through the 300 acres that's out there, it had been plowed and, and had winter rye planted in this fall. And lo and behold, as I'm walking there on the ground is a piece of pipe, pipe stem. The colonials would smoke these big, long pipes made out of a slurry that probably came from Glasgow. And they would pour the slurry into these molds and create these long pipes. And you see them in movies all the time, the big, long pipes in the, in the inns and stuff they would smoke. And as they smoked for any length of time, 
the end of the pipe would get a little bit soggy and lose its rigidity and they would snap it off an inch or so and just toss it and then keep smoking the pipe. It'd start out at about 12 or 14 inches long and end up when it got so hot that they couldn't put it in their lips anymore, they would discard the bowl as well. And we find those all buried in those cornfields out there. And yesterday I found a piece of it. They would put a piece of straw in the slurry, in the mold, pour the slurry in the mold, and then they would kiln bake it. And then the straw would burn out and you'd have a beautiful even hole all the way through so that the pipe bowl could be utilized for smoking tobacco. The Great Meadows also contain all kinds of artifacts that tell a story about the indigenous people that were there. These were the planting fields, corn, beans, and squash for the first people that were here. They'd been here for 10,000 years. They hunted and gathered here, and they encouraged certain wild plants to grow. But there was a time where tobacco and corn came in from the southwest, and that changed everything. It allowed the people to settle down a little bit more and start becoming farmers as opposed to pure hunter-gatherers. And so they would plant corn, beans, and squash in these meadows for over 1,800 years. And some of the pottery that just came off of the Wissatiniwag property, which is on the tail of the sleeping beaver that I spoke of earlier, was taken to the University of Connecticut Archaeological Department. And they scraped the bottom of some of these clay potteries, and they found that they contained corn and carbon. And the carbon indicated that corn showed up in this area about 500 years earlier than they realized it had been here. So we now know that people were planting here in these fields somewhere around 2,300 years ago. And they did it for the whole duration until the plague caught up with them and the Europeans got here. So in those fields are all kinds of everyday items that you might expect to have a woman and her children having in possession of themselves small knives that they would create out of flint and they would hang it around their neck with a piece of leather. The flint came out of New York State. The indigenous people were trading all kinds of commodities. And then when the colonials finally showed up and John Pynchon and his trading post started trading items that came from Europe, one of the items that showed up a lot were little ceramic trade dolls where the arms and legs would move and sometimes the head would move, sometimes it wouldn't and all kinds of other miscellaneous trade items. They're in the fields out there, and the Indian children loved these dolls. They would make their dolls out of corn husks previous to that, but when they had trade items, they were always in the fields with their mothers. It was the women who planted the fields. They took care of, of planting and harvesting the corn, beans, and squash. The men took care of hunting, building the structures, and defense and playing an awful lot of games. They had a lot of time to play games. They had all kinds of wonderful games, games of chance and stuff. That was, that was what the men's job in life was. But, uh, but they did leave hard lives when it was time to get out in, and on the hunt. They led really hard lives. And the same with when it was time to defend against intruders. But we find in these fields down here, and I found many of them, pieces, little ceramic legs from toy dolls, arms, heads, torsos, and all kinds of other miscellaneous trade items. They're in the fields out there. Every year when they plow up the fields, new stuff comes up. A lot of histories there. So when I'm talking about walking across the land and knowing what to look for and, and how to read the landscape and understand what some of the stories are, there they are. They're available to be had. So we're back to the first fort and settlement.
that happens to be on the north end of my property, just east of my property, abutting Main Street. The fort was 300 feet wide by 500 feet long. It was a palisade. It was put up the first year of the first settlement in 1673. They came in in the spring. They had scouted out the area in 1669, talked to some of the indigenous people that were here. There weren't a lot of them left because of the plague, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But they talked to them about selling some of the land that was here. And the sachems that owned the property said they would consider it. So they came back and negotiated with them, and they got a tract of land in Northfield that, that they agreed upon, and they paid half of what they owed for it to pay the other half when they finally actually showed up and started building their palisade and setting up shop, which is exactly what happened. So some of these Indians showed up and said, well, we are due our second payment now. So there was an Irishman. His name was Cornelius Mary, who was hanging out with the English, which is quite unusual. But Cornelius knew what he wanted and knew what he needed. And he had the gift of tongue, like so many Irish do. He could talk up a storm. And he was a very likable individual. But he was not truly accepted by the settlement. But when the Indians showed up and they said, we need to get compensated for the second half of what's owed us, none of the other settlers that were here knew how to deal with the Indians. Cornelius walked up to him and said, well, let's talk. What are we talking about here? And he actually sat down and he created the deed for the second payment of the first settlement in Northfield. And he reached into his own pocket and came up with 12 pounds silver and paid the Indians for the deed. And even after he did that, they would not let him build a house proper in the village. He had to build outside of the settlement because he was Irish. And you understand that the English and Irish had been fighting for so long. The, the Catholics and the Protestants had been fighting for so long. So I wanted to make sure that Cornelius got a mention here because he was in the first settlement. He was in the second attempt to settle Northfield because he was here when the fort was attacked on September 2nd, 1675. He came again later in 1682. So he was part of the second settlement. And that settlement lasted from 82 to 90. It wasn't a long settlement. Then his son, Cornelius Jr., came in for the third settlement, which was the final settlement because the first two got burned out by the Indians. And 1714 was the third settlement. So Cornelius's bloodline was here for all three settlements. The pioneering gumption that it took to be here. This was the furthest northern point of the British Empire on the Connecticut River, which is why in the poem it says the tip of the spear. So the poem wants to cover a lot of that detail. Well, the palisade in this case was fort walls that were built of probably of white pine. Vertical. Posts were in the ground, and then around the top of the palisade, they would have a, a walking platform in order to shoot down on the enemy as they might have been coming in. Now, in the case of this fort, there was actually a natural elevation up on the north end of my property that allowed them to sit on the hill inside of the fort and have an advantage. There were also two streams that run across my property that are now underground because when they built the highway through, they covered up those streams, but they ran through the fort. So the Palisade had about 13 thatched huts around the outside of the fort for the part of the first settlement, and then a number of, of structures inside the settlement. So on the morning when the village was attacked, 
all those that could make it back into the fort held it down and the Indians started burning the, the structures that were outside of the fort. Those that could not make it back to the safety of the palisade ended up lying where they were. When Northfield started to go up in flames, word got back to Hatfield that we were in trouble. So they sent up Captain Beers to draw down the fort. So he came up with a contingent of volunteers. But he was attacked on the old trail about two miles south of the fort. And most of his men lost their lives and are buried in a mass grave there. So then when he didn't come back and the settlers didn't get to come back, they sent up Captain Treat. And he came up with a large contingent of soldiers and volunteers from the Springfield and Hatfield and Hadley area. They came up with wagons and oxen. And when they arrived, the Indians scattered because they were outnumbered considerably. But they were so concerned about getting everybody out of there and safely back to the south that they said, leave everything you have behind, including your dead. You're coming with us now. And they got them on the carts and the oxen, and they protected them and got them back out out of the area. So we had a number of people, indigenous and otherwise, that had gone over three days in the heat of that September weather and had started to decompose. And they left those bodies there and didn't come back for seven years. Samuel Wright was one of those. So his bones were left on the side of Meadow Hill, where they finally discovered his bones, and they buried them in the ground that is now the cemetery just north of us here. Samuel Wright be my name, forty-six years would still be I, on ye two or September, 1675. In this valley so bonny, yet so mournfully alone, our small band of pilgrims stood fast, our new home. Ye point to the arrow, this palisade, they called. With the sweat of our brows we built four sturdy walls. Twere no help from the east, no favor from the west, and the devil to the north at ye best. So what was happening, Philip was trying to keep his young braves from getting too rambunctious. He really didn't want to go to war. But they had hit a limit with what they felt they could take from the settlers. And they really wanted to have a place where they could be safe, where they could fish and hunt and be safe. And one of the first names that the settlers heard was Susquakeeg, which meant the fishing place, the good fishing place. So what happened was Philip tried to gather all the refugees he could find And he wanted to usher them up to Northfield here, which in fact he did. There were over 2,000 of them. And they spent the late fall of 75 and the winter of 76 here in Northfield because the settlers weren't going to come back up here after what happened to Northfield because Deerfield had also gotten attacked in September of 75. And so hadn't the Bloody Brook Massacre occurred because William Pynchon was one of the sponsors of all these settlements had hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn that were supposed to be given to him to pay off debts for his creating the settlements that he was financing. So he brought in an army to pick up the corn so that he could get paid back, but they all got attacked and and the corn never made it back to Northampton. So 
The Indians that got attacked on the morning of May 19, 1676 at the Great Falls were the refugees, the old men, women, and children that were safely guarded here in Northfield. They had moved down to the Great Falls to fish and to plant. They planted in the North Meadows of Deerfield, which were part of Pocumtuck Territory, and they planted in and around the southern areas of Northfield as well. So they were putting corn, beans, and squash in, and they were harvesting salmon, shad, and allswives. And they were smoking them and getting their food supplies, and they had been sorely in want of food. Mary Rollins was here in the winter of 75. She was the wife of a prominent minister. And she was one of the first women to actually be allowed to write an accounting, a factual accounting of a piece of history that she was part of. You can read about Mary Rowlandson's accounting. And she speaks of meeting Philip here in Northfield and having been given tobacco by Philip and how she would barter the tobacco because she didn't smoke. She'd barter the tobacco with some of the other Indians to try to get morsels of food to eat because she was sort of like a vagabond up and down here. She was, a, she was a prisoner, but she wasn't a prisoner to be tortured necessarily. She was a prisoner that had value, trade value. But they were negotiating peace from March through April and May. They were, the Indians were negotiating peace with Boston and Connecticut. Now, Boston was a separate entity from the crown. Connecticut is where England held their power. Boston was the Massachusetts Bay Colony Corporation, which was the first corporation in America and the first time that England had ever let corporate papers leave on a ship from England. So they took their corporate papers with them and they formed the Massachusetts Bay Colony out of Boston. And so Massachusetts Bay Colony, they were land speculators, of which John and William Pynchon were both land speculators. And so that was part of the motivation for them to want to access up north here. But England, on the other hand, had a completely different plan. The King of England did not want to create problems with the Indians because he was trying to rebuild his navy. And the only way he could rebuild his navy to be bigger, faster, and stronger than the French or anybody else that he might have had problems with was to get a hold of the white pines that lined the Connecticut River. They were ancient growth white pines. They were 175 feet, 230 feet tall, straight as an arrow, clean, solid. So for England, their emphasis was on being peaceful with the Indians, cutting down the white pines just before the spring freshets and floating them down to Connecticut and shipping them over to England to upgrade their navy. The land speculators from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, on the other hand, they were all about land. And Northfield was part of this whole conversation. Everybody that was part of the first, second, and third settlement of Northfield, they were all employees of John Pynchon, in so much as their job was to plant the fields, harvest the crops, bring them back to Pynchon, pay off their debts, and once they paid off their debts, they could then start to become known as the river gods. The river gods were the first settlers that settled next to the Connecticut River that managed to pay off their debts and start to bring in additional crops after their debts were paid, and they became very, very powerful and very, very wealthy. The Williamses were one of them. Now, the Williamses played a part in the attack on Deerfield in 1704. Reverend Williams, his daughter Eunice, his wife, 
They were part of the river god lineage that came out of this arrangement of being an indentured servant to John Pynchon and his trading post and his estate. So Northfield was no different. They kept coming back, even though they got attacked and burnt out. So here's the thing about the first settlement in Northfield. They had brought in a crop, a really good crop of wheat. So the gold in the wheat fields are fortunes to claim, which is in the poem. Boston was really in want of good quality bread. They couldn't create good quality bread because the wheat that was grown down on the East Coast was really second-rate stuff. They didn't have the soil. The character of the soil was wrong. They couldn't grow good wheat, but they could in the Connecticut River Valley up and down through here, through Hatfield and, and Northfield and Northampton. And so the quality of the wheat was such that they were paid premiums for it and the colonies were really looking for it. So these folks had their wheat, they had brought in their wheat crop, but they hadn't thrashed it or milled it yet. So it was still standing in the fields gathered together on September 2nd when the fort got attacked. So the first thing the Indians did, of course, was they burned all the wheat and they burned all the corn that were down there because they wanted them to get the message, stay away from Northfield. This is our sanctuary here. And so it very much was a part of King Philip's War, the early, early stages. But Philip didn't want to go to war but he was forced to go to war because on September 2nd, the same day as Northfield, Brookfield got attacked and a few other places got attacked and they got burnt to the ground because the marauding young men just said, well, Philip, we're going with you or we're going without you. Now, in the winter of 1676, there were giant council fires by the Indians just south of the settlement in town here. So all the great sachems were gathering there, and they were trying to discuss, okay, are we going to sue for peace or we go to war? And they had been negotiating peace with, like I said, Boston and Connecticut. And those peace agreements were contingent upon the release of captives, which they were doing. So Mary Rowlandson was one of them. She ended up getting released as a show of good faith. And there were a whole number of captives from the Deerfield area that got released as a show of good faith. But the crown had a law that said that you couldn't take land unless you got it in fair English compensation by English standards or if there was a just war. And so Pynchon, being a lawyer, he understood that he could get around this whole thing if he could conjure up a way to say, well, yeah, we were negotiating peace, but they broke the peace and we decided to attack them. And so what happened was they fabricated a fake raid on the cattle and horses of Hatfield, but it never happened. You'll never see it in Hatfield's history. There was no raid on their cattle or their horses, but they wrote letters saying there was a raid and that they were going forth the next day to attack the Great Falls, and that would have been uh, May 19, 1676. So they headed out on May 18th in the early evening, loaded with rum, black powder, muskets, and horses, over 140 of them. And they worked their way through the night, through thunderstorms and everything else, till they got up onto the high ground above the Great Falls and Turner's Falls. And at first light, on a signal, they all started firing into the wigwams. First light on May 19th, at this time of year, and I've done it for over 25 years, is 4.45 in the morning. So 4.40 in the morning, you don't know if you're shooting at a white man or an Indian, but at 4.45 in the morning, you know who you're shooting at. 
It was like throwing a light switch. 10,000 years of history at that spot on that river as a peace village came to an end and never, ever came back again. That was the contingent that was staying safely here in Northfield from the indigenous people. That was the men, women, and children and the old men. And they only had 70 braves for over 2,000 people. So they were scattered pretty thin to defend all these folks. So we had the first fort of Northfield attacked. We had Captain Beers attacked, trying to draw down the fort. And then we had Captain Treat make it back up here two days later and draw down the fort. And all the victims that had died over that time period were left where they lay. Now, what had happened in 1669 when they first showed up to Northfield was there were two plagues that moved up the Connecticut River. One came from around the Plymouth area and the East Coast in general, 1613. So that plague worked its way just at the beginnings of the Connecticut River, never quite got up here. It burnt out before it got up here. It came back around again in 1630 and came up into Northfield and wiped out 90% of the inhabitants because they had no resistance to these European bugs, whether it was the flu, whether it was chickenpox, smallpox, they had zero resistance to it and it wiped out 90% of the population. So when the first explorers came into Northfield in 1669, there were very few indigenous people left here. They weren't all gone, but there were very few left. And those that were here realized that they probably couldn't hold on to the land nor defend the land, so they decided they'd best sell it and hightail out of here. And that's where those negotiations started from uh, 1669 and then the first settlement in 1673. So we have settlers here that had they been able to bring in their crops on that September in 1675, probably would have been able to pay off their debts to pension, no longer been under his employment or indentured servitude, and would have been able to elevate themselves so much higher than they could have ever dreamed of elevating themselves in Europe, because the caste system in Europe wouldn't let anybody out of its place. So you were either on top or you were on the bottom, and there's nothing in between. So that's why they were willing to do it. The indigenous people got along with a lot of those early settlers pretty well. But the church kept stepping in, and when the church would step in, it would say, no, this isn't good. These are heathens. If they don't want to become Christians, you ought not to be having anything to do with them. But what the first settlers recognized in indigenous people was a level of kinship and a level of freedom that they had never imagined could exist in a human existence. And they got to see it in these tribal people. And some of them got really close. What they saw was they saw communities working together for each other's welfare. So all these 300 plus acres of great meadows, and then there was the Moose Plain Meadows, and then there were Mary's Meadows, and there were all these meadows that were growing hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn, beans, and squash. That bounty was shared with all the tribal people, and it was utilized as a way for trade as well. Now, Pynchon got himself in trouble in Northampton. There was a couple of winters when the first settlements were there, the European settlements, they couldn't feed themselves. And he came out wheeling and dealing with some of his Indian connections, and he got 50 canoes laden with corn shipped down the Connecticut River. And there's a beautiful painting in the Montague Town Hall. So Pynchon knew the value of the land, which is why he he wanted to speculate the land. He knew what kind of crops it could grow. 
But what the Europeans saw was they saw the way that tribal people would support each other. They also saw how much time they had on their hands to spend with their children, how much time on their hands to enjoy each other's company in a communal kind of way. The women in the fields would sing. They'd sing while they were planting the corn. They'd sing while they were harvesting the corn. The children would run around and play. And in the European mindset, that was an action of the devil, according to the Protestant religion. Women would sing and the children would play. And for them, life was good. And indigenous people had so much ceremony. And you've got to understand that gratitude is what motivates. Gratitude for the sunrise in the morning. They wanted to catch the first light and get out and say, thank you, Creator, for this new day that you've given me. Thank you, Son, for coming up one more time. You know, that's the attitude that indigenous people had. And when they would bring in their harvest, they'd celebrate. Now, what happened was when the plague of 1630 came through and the populations got diminished, the Mohawks had good hunting, they had good fishing, but they were living on much less fertile ground. They had very, very poor corn, beans, and squash crops. They had been having a relationship with the Dutch previous to the English, and so the Dutch had been on such friendly grounds with them because if you know anything about the Dutch, they're about business, not about conquering. They never wanted to conquer people. They wanted to create business relationships. So with the Dutch, they were in the fur trade. And so they were trading with the Mohawks in on very friendly relations. And they didn't have fear that if they sold the Mohawks muskets, that the Mohawks would turn around and use the muskets against the Dutch. They liked the Dutch. They were getting treated very fairly by the Dutch. was not the case with Pynchon and a lot of his cohorts. They were not trading fairly. One year, you know, so many pounds of pelts would be worth X, Y, and Z. The next year, you had to bring in twice as many pelts to get the same amount of payment. And because the Indians ran up tabs with people like Pynchon, they thought, well, they understood how many pelts they could bring in the next year and pay off the tab. But they'd show up and Pynchon would say, well, you still owe me. They'd give them the same amount of pelts that they had given them a previous year, maybe more, but it wouldn't pay off the tab. So they didn't trust them. But, But the Dutch trusted the Mohawks. The Mohawks had the muskets. The people in Squahik, the Sokoke, they didn't have the muskets. Their method of warfare and protection were still bows and arrows for the most part, and war clubs. With the diminished numbers, they didn't have the ability to any longer protect Northfield. The Mohawks raided Northfield in 1664. So 1630, the plague came through. By 1664, there are only a handful of indigenous people still here. So the Mohawks came in and they raided Northfield and they said, you need to pay us not to raid you anymore. So they started letting them have a certain amount of the crops that they were growing, and that was not sustainable. The people that were left here in 1669 realized, we've got the Mohawks coming across the way with muskets. We don't have the ability to trade our crops and our furs to get muskets because the English won't sell us muskets. The English did sell muskets, but for the most part... If you didn't have a well-established relationship with the English traders, they weren't going to give you muskets. They would give you rum, on the other hand, get you drunker than a skunk, and then arrest you for drunkenness in a public place, and then fine you. And then when they find you, if you didn't have the money to pay them, they would go to your relatives and say, you've got to give us land 
if you want to get them out of jail, because if we want, we can sell them as slaves in the West Indies, which is exactly what they did. And that's what happened to Philip's family at the end of the war, was his family got shipped off to the West Indies as slaves. So Northfield had so much potential for the English. It had already had wonderful potential for over 10,000 years for indigenous people. They had been burning the fields and burning the hills, the tops of the mountains around here for thousands and thousands of years. Now, as you move in and about the landscape, the, the hillside in Northfield and up and down the valley here, you're going to run into the cultural remains of ceremonial stone landscapes all over the place. But if you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to think, oh, it's just a pile of rocks, or it's just this, or it's just that. But the fact of the matter is these people celebrated the celestial movements in the times of the year ritually every, every year. That's why they kept the tops of the mountains burned. They kept the valleys burned so that the game could move in and have soft grasses to eat and that they could set up their villages under the beautiful ancient white pines and they could grow their crops in the fields. They got flooded out on a regular basis and they got rid of the trees there like the Great Meadows here and they had all these beautiful planting fields. But when the pilgrims landed in Plymouth in 1620, they landed early in December, but they were sorely in want of food and water because of the journey they were on. They were sick and they were really hurting for food, but they were deathly afraid to come ashore. They understood through what they had learned about indigenous culture that on the winter solstice, which was December 21st, that all the tribes would be up in the mountains celebrating their ceremonial events, their winter solstice. So they waited from early December till the 21st of December before they came ashore. Didn't see a soul around, started digging up hills looking for caches of corn because the Indians used to create corn barns by putting them in hills and ended up digging indigenous graves. One of the graves they dug up, though, happened to be a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Indian. And that speaks to really early contact way before the English or the French arrived here. So they managed to get enough water and some food, but they did not set a good relationship with the Indians whose graves they had been robbing, and that's in the history books. But it speaks to what I'm talking about in Northfield here. I remember when Howard Carter discovered Tut's tomb. You remember that, 1922. He was archaeologist Howard Carter. And what happened was when they started getting close, they were down in the hole and they had to lower a little boy down in the hole and he had a candle. And Carter said, tell me what you see, boy. And the boy answered back, I see wonderful things. I see wonderful things. Because he was looking through at the treasure trove of Tut's tomb. And when I walk through Northfield in the mountains and the hills or in the cornfields, I see wonderful things. I see the magic of history sitting right there under my feet, telling me these stories. There was a sand dune across the way here 20 years ago when a farm family bought some of the land from an elder farmer who had passed away. And they decided that they didn't like the sand dune being there. Now, the sand dunes were a product of ancient Lake Hitchcock. When it receded and the winds were blowing, and then the land started to dry up, all this sand would start blowing on the wind all day long, and it would gather in dunes, not unlike it does on the seashore, south-southwest. So these dunes would grow bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Well, they didn't want to have to deal with trying to plant up and down the hills of the dunes across the road here, which is just south of me by about 3,000 yards. So they brought a bulldozer in. And it was in winter when they did it because they had harvested their last crop for that season. They wanted to get the low areas that were filling up with water filled in, and they wanted to get rid of the high areas so they could have a more even piece of land to tilt the following year. So when they bulldozed it, the next morning I walked across the highway, across Route 10 and down into their field, which is right on the Connecticut River. And lo and behold, what did I see in that beautiful blue Hitchcock clay on the bottom? I saw a fire hearth that was underneath one of those sand dunes. The fire hearth was about a foot across, had charcoal in it and bits and pieces around the edges of it. And it was sitting on the blue ancient Lake Hitchcock clay that was under a sand dune, which means the paleo people were moving through this valley right after the lake receded. They didn't even wait for the grasses to grow or the tundra to get here. They were moving their way up this new terrain that was the bottom of Lake Hitchcock. It was this beautiful glue clay. And they built a fire right there next to the river on whatever day that was, probably somewhere around 13,000, 14,000 years ago. And there it was, been there the whole time until they bulldozed that sand dune out of the way, and there was that. And that's the kind of magic that Northfield can give somebody if they just want to take a look around. It's just amazing, just amazing. So Northfield was settled three times, got burnt out two times, and finally hunkered down and made it in 1714 was the final settlement. And from that point on, it was well established. A few of the Indians did come back into the 1800s and they set up shop on some of the hills during the nice weather and then they would move away probably to the south to be on the coast with relatives because all these people were connected. All these indigenous people were connected to kinships. So at the Great Falls, you'd have the Pocumtuck and you'd have the Sokoke, and you'd have the Wampanoag, and the Narragansett, and the Nipmuc, and all these people from as far away as the Ohio Valley would come and gather at the Great Falls, and it was like the Woodstock of the Connecticut River. I mean, these people came, and they had a grand time. They would marry, they would exchange technologies, they'd exchange goods, they would harvest the fish, they would celebrate, they would celebrate, they would celebrate. It was considered a place of peace because if Creator was going to give them that kind of bounty, they were never going to abuse it by creating bad relationships with each other. So whatever grievances they had before they arrived at the Great Falls, they had to let those go because otherwise they would have been in trouble with Creator. So they had this wonderful bounty. And we know that 90% of the population died during the pandemics. And people have all been grossly underestimating how many indigenous people lived up and down the Connecticut River Valley right up to this day. But I would guarantee you that during the time of the fish runs at the Great Falls, of which the Sokoke people were part of, you know, Squawkeeg people were part of, there had to be 20, 30,000 people gathering at those falls. And the landscape reveals that fact. We have artifacts from all over the Northeast going as far as the Mississippi Valley, Ohio Valley, 
these cultures had unique tool-making processes. And so there's a little river that comes down at the base of the falls, where the Great Falls is, called Falls River. On one side of Falls River is where the Wissatiniwag, the 10,000-year-old village site, is that had been continually occupied for 10,000 years. And then on the north side of that little stream called Falls River, closer to the Great Falls, you had a whole nother group of artifacts technologies happening. So you had the Adena people with their technologies, their way of making points, and you had all other cultural ways of making points from the Nipmuc and all the different tribal characteristics. And you can see those in the archaeological digs. They can find a point of demarcation where certain cultures were here and certain other cultures were there, but they were there in peace, and it's just amazing. We know from an archaeological dig done in 1970 in Riverside Gill, because that has an impact on what happened here in Northfield. In Riverside Gill, we know that there was an archaeological dig by Dr. Peter Thomas, and he went down, went down, went down in that summer as deep as he could go, and he told me that he had run across a feature down there where the charcoal never ceased. The charcoal for the smoking pits was continuous, and then all of a sudden, he hit a layer of silt about six or eight inches thick, and and then the charcoal was back again before that. So he predicts somewhere around 7,000 years ago, there was a major high water event that flooded out the whole Connecticut River Valley. Now, the silt above the falls was six to seven inches deep at that 7,000 year mark. The silt below the falls, but mile down from the falls where the Deerfield River runs north into the Connecticut River against the current of the Connecticut River, there was a silt build up there, 13 meters. Now a meter is 39 inches. So we figure there were plunge pools in Turner's Falls, just north of the Great Falls, where the water for thousands and thousands of years had been coming over these plunge pools, and then they fell down into the area known as Barton Cove, the plunge pools of Barton Cove. Sometime around 7,000 years ago, there was so much water coming into the valley here that that earthen dam that made its way to the east side of the river and blocked the river, forcing it to go over the plunge pools, gave way. And when that earthen dam gave way, that earthen dam washed downstream. Above the dam, it left six inches of silt, but below the dam, where the Deerfield River runs north, and don't forget the Deerfield River would have been subject to the same high water event as the Connecticut River. So you can imagine these two bodies of water with all this force running against each other and actually stopping the flow of water so that all this silt was spinning around like a centrifuge and then falling to the bottom, 13 meters deep. And at the bottom of that 13 meters, they found charcoal fire pits. So what we know about the indigenous occupation of this area up on the river here is that the place we think people were living may or may not have been, but we know for sure where they were creating a lot of their activities, which is in a whole different place. This river right now is an impoundment because there's a dam in Turner's Falls. So it's effectively a lake up here, but it was never a lake for 10,000 years. It was a glacial river. It ran free. It was a stone bottom river. And we know for a fact that up north, there are petroglyphs carved into some of the stones that are down near the river where it used to run, which is now underwater, but where it used to run prior to there being a dam built in Turner's Falls. So we know there's a lot of history that's buried out there right now in the river basin. As we look at the Connecticut River and coming over the bridge out of Burniston, 
we look and say, oh, that's the Connecticut River, but it's not. It's the Connecticut Pond. The real river was very different. It had a lot of energy to it, a lot of speed. It was clean. It was not mud bottom. It was a rock bottom river. It was a glacial river, a beautiful body of water. And that's why the salmon and the shad and the housewives had to make their way north because this was just perfect breeding grounds for those species. And so that's part of what sustained these people. Now, one of the things about my property is it has it all. It has the first fort and settlement, which was also a fort that the Sokoke people had when the Mohawks attacked them in 1664. So that area there, because it had the streams, it had the palisades, it had the high ground to defend yourself, it had it all there. That's right there on the north end of my property. Also on my property here is something called a killing trench or a killing ditch. And what it was was there was an ancient method of hunting game, particularly in the fall, where you would have an open body of land like the Great Meadows out here, and then you'd have a deep, deep ravine that would run inland. I have that on my land, the killing trench. What they would do is that the people would get out in the fields, children, women, everybody would get out, and they'd make a lot of noise, and they would chase all the game off the fields, and they would funnel them down into this trench. And then when they would start running up this trench, which is really, really steep and really, really narrow, then they could throw down on top of them, they could throw down boulders and rocks or spears or, or shoot them with arrows if that's what they had. And they could do a fall harvest that would carry them through the winter, It'd give them hides, give them meat, and give them everything they needed to make it through the winter. Typically, they would do it in the fall. And that exists on my property. And I can look down in that trench and recognize the boulders that don't belong there because they were brought in from somewhere else. Boulders the size of a basketball to three times the size of a basketball to the size of what you'd hold in, in, with two of your hands together. Something that could break the skull of an animal, break a backbone, whatever. They're all there. That story is all there. And that's way pre-contact. That's thousands and thousands of years ago, probably to the paleo time period. Once Hitchcock receded enough that this became a, a tundra area, that would have been perfect hunting ground for something like that. Now, I was putting in a set of steps in my north pasture to go down to a little campsite that I created one spring 25 years ago and digging some posts for the mechanics of the steps that I was building. And out of the ground came a bunch of these flakes. They were marble-colored flakes, like you'd see the marbling in a nice piece of meat. It was a chert that came out of New York State. Now, I know where the mine is, that where that came from, because I've gone out there with friends, and we've brought the lithic material out there, looked at it, compared it, and said, oh, yeah, this is where this come from. It's like fingerprints, like snowflakes. You know, A certain mine will give you a certain kind of material. So these flakes came up, and then all of a sudden, a knife blade came up. Now, the knife blade that came up was a chert knife, and whoever sat on that hill and created that knife blade sat there honing that piece, working that piece with the flakes falling right down between their legs, and then somehow or another, for whatever reason, set that piece down and never went back and got it. And there it was. It was the blade, and it was the chips from the blade right there in the same spot, and I still have them to this day. About a three-and-a-half-inch knife blade, they would have hafted it on a piece of wood or bone, hung it around their necks, and it would have been used every day for all kinds of things. So that's the kind of stories that are in the land here. People don't think about it. Every day they go to work or whatever, 
they don't look at the heavens. The people that were here burned the hills, built ceremonial stone landscapes all over the place. Why? Because they knew what was going on in the heavens. And the heavens told them where they were in their lives, where they were in their seasons. Where they were in their lives, they could watch the Perseus meteor showers and watch their newly deceased relatives going to Katanowitz House in the southwest. Where they were in the seasons, they knew how long before, with winter solstice, they knew exactly how many moons before they would get ready to start planting again. They knew if their food supply was going to hold out for that length of time. They knew if they had to go on a winter hunt or not. In my town, people rarely take the time to look up or look down. And it's all here. It's just like the young boy said when he discovered Tut's tomb. I see wonderful things. Northfield is just an amazing place to live. It's full of wonderful things. And I just would so much wish that I could encourage people to slow down a little bit. Pick up a history book. Take a look in the archives at the original handwritten documents where the history books were created from. Start to talk to the scientists. We're living on the edge of the eastern fault line, the eastern border fault, the Connecticut River, this river here. You and I are sitting in Africa right now. We're sitting on the ancient continent of Africa as it slammed into the ancient continent of North America and created the ancient continent of Pangaea. North America was tilted 90 degrees from where it is now. So 480 million years ago, the Pangaean continents came, the continents came together to form the supercontinent of Pangaea, this giant, enormous continent. And very slowly, the crusts were rotating until they rotated 90 degrees from where they are now. And then Africa started to rumble and shake and break away from what we consider North America right now. And so when that happened, all kinds of volcanic activities happened. The giant sleeping beaver is a volcanic rift. It's, it's where the earth opened up and all this magma came up and mixed with all these other stones and the heat and the pressure and everything, and you created what we would call the redstone of Sugarloaf Range. We have more kinds of rocks in our area here in Northfield and up and down the valley than so many other places in the United States. We have some of the oldest mountains in the world sitting here, and they don't look very big, and they don't look very big because they're very, very old. These mountains were created when the crusts came together, and Africa slammed into North America, and the crusts lifted up. And then one of the crusts slid under the other crust, and created a rift in the earth. The magma came up through. This is the eastern border fault, and we're sitting in what was part of the African continent. That didn't quite break free, and so what we now know as the east coast was where Africa finally broke free when it was here. So the Connecticut River is the eastern border fault between Africa and North America, and it's, it's amazing. And what blows my mind is we've had 20 glacial epochs come through here and just scrape the ground clean. I mean, scrape it right down to bedrock over millions and millions of years. But yet, if you look at the vegetation in certain parts of Africa, the sumac and everything else, and you look at the vegetation in and around Northfield here, it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. It blows my mind that somehow or another, these life forces manage to understand where they could live and how they could live and do a good job of it. And it's just amazing to know all this stuff and to be privy to it 
and say to yourself, I don't need to go anywhere else if I really want to go on an adventure. All I have to do is walk out my front door. I bought this house in 1987. I've been living in Deerfield prior to that for 15 years. So I wanted to learn everything I could about Northfield. My wife and I came here. It was in the early spring of 87. But what excited me was it was a little cottage. It's a beautiful little cottage. It was built in 1757. Now, 1757 was the time of Queen Anne's War. It was the time of the famous book and film, Last of the Mohicans. That is the time period when my little house was built, when the French and the English were fighting each other like crazy. Now, when we first bought the house, it had four doors in it. It had a south door, it had a north door, it had an east door, and it had a west door. They didn't know where the enemy was going to come from, but they knew they had to have a door each direction to get out of when it was time to get out of it. It was considered an English half house. It was 14 feet wide by 27 feet long. A full English house under settlement regulations from the crown would have been 28 by 28 feet. Unless you held a really high place in society, that was your limit. 28 by 28 feet. And the number of windows that you could put in were limited as well because there was still a caste system going on. But whoever built my house didn't have enough money because we're still under English law under the rulership of the crown at the time my house was built. They didn't have enough money for a full house, so they were granted permission to build an English half house. So it was one and a half stories with a loft. When I first got here, I wanted to replace the old pine clapboards that were curling and buckling that were on the wall. So I stripped down the old pine boards. And lo and behold, underneath those pine boards were something called eagle boards. Now, eagle boards were boards that were sanctioned by the crown. So when we were harvesting timber during that time period for the colonies, the crown wanted the best timber, the widest boards for their ships. So any board over 24 inches. You had to pay a tax on it, or you had to give it to the crown. And so if you couldn't pay the taxes, what a lot of people were doing was they were trying to find somebody to mill it and cut it down to 12 inches. <laughs> so that they, But whoever built my place paid the taxes. And what happened was the tax collector had inventoried those boards on my house on behalf of the crown with Roman numerals. And so the boards were all covered with Roman numerals as part of the inventory, because some of those boards were 30, 39 inches wide. So somebody paid the taxes on those boards in order to utilize them to build the house. So the house mainframe may have been built prior to those boards going on, but at some point, somebody got enough money together to redo the exterior of the house, and they put on those wide boards that were cut from the white pines. And some of the boards in the house are chestnut, because the plague hadn't come through and wrecked the chestnut yet, and chestnut was utilized for all kinds of wonderful stuff. The beams in my cellar are hand-hewn chestnut. The beams in my barns, some of the beams are chestnut. So the house itself has got a lot of history in it. It tells me that maybe somebody like Cornelius Mary might have built it. He had something to do with this property at some point. But one of his family members might have built it because it was after him. But the point is, somebody who was not in the hierarchy built that house. They probably were farming smaller plots of land out here. But they built it solid. It's still there today. It used to have a slate roof. But under the slate roof, when I stripped it down all those years ago, were shakes, hand-hewn shakes. 
So they had roofed it with white pine shakes. So I covered it with a steel roof right now, and, and that's how the house is. But So then the house was added on to, in, uh, somewhere around 1957, a porch was added on. 1970, the previous owner enclosed that porch, and now I have a beautiful West View room that's opened all up. It's part of the original English half house that's there. Just a lot of history there. It's, it's a neat place to live. It's a neat place to be, and I feel absolutely privileged to be here in Northfield. When the house was built, how many other residential structures would there have been, roughly, in, in Northfield at the time? Northfield, because of the value of the crops that were coming in in the 1700s, I think there were probably an awful lot of houses. The Stearns family came in in the 1800s, and they were a family of highly skilled carpenters and craftsmen, and they built some of the most beautiful houses up and down Main Street. That's where the money was. That's where the old family money was. The Mattoons and the, and the Wrights and all those old, old families, they were here all up and down Main Street. They owned all those properties. And I recently did a survey on my property, and we had to go back into the archives and into the Registry of Deeds to start archiving where my land is. And I have 13 bounds to determine where my property is. That's how many times the property had get merged with other old colonial pieces of property. So I'm, I'm on some of the Mattoons land. I'm on a lot of the early first settlers from that first fort. I have some of their land. And, and those old stones are still there. They're a, they're a standing piece of history. It's just amazing to see them. Now, they all talked about the brow of the hill. The brow of the hill is right here. This barn is sitting on the brow of the hill, and it runs north and south. And the brow of the hill was a boundary for an awful lot of those first allotments of land. And I can go down and walk north up my property and see the stones on the brow of the hill. It's just phenomenal, you see. And when you can look at it on a map, you can see that they were really strict about making sure that everybody got an equal piece of land. That was part of the deal. If you were going to come out here and settle, this is an English settlement, you were going to get taken care of as far as land goes. But that's how I move through my life. That's how I look at the land. My ashes will be scattered here on this land, and, and I'll be smiling. <laughs>